Chapter Thirty Two of Men of Iron. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Rhonda Fetterman. Men of Iron by Howard Pyle. Chapter Thirty Two. In the days of King Edward the Third, a code of laws relating to trial by battle had been compiled for one of his sons, Thomas of Woodstock. In this work, each and every detail, to the most minute, had been arranged and fixed, and from that time judicial combats had been regulated in accordance with its mandates. It was in obedience to this code that Miles Falworth appeared at the east gate of the lists, the east gate being assigned by law to the challenger. Clad in full armor of proof, attended by Gascoigne, and accompanied by two of the young knights who had acted as his escort from Scotland Yard. At the barriers he was met by the attorney Willingwood, the chief lawyer who had conducted the Falworth case before the High Court of Chivalry, and who was to attend him during the administration of the oaths before the king. As Miles presented himself at the gate, he was met by the constable, the marshal, and their immediate attendants. The constable, laying his hand upon the bridle rein, said, in a loud voice, Stand, Sir Knight, and tell me why thou art come thus armed to the gates of the lists. What is thy name? Wherefore art thou come? Miles answered, I am Miles Falworth, a knight of the bath by grace of his majesty King Henry the Fourth, and by his creation and do come hither to defend my challenge upon the body of William Bushy Brookhurst, Earl of Alban, proclaiming him an unknightly knight, and a false and perjured liar, in that he hath accused Gilbert Reginald, Lord Falworth, of treason against our beloved Lord, His Majesty the King, and may God defend the right. As he ended speaking, the constable advanced close to his side, and formally raising the umbril of his helmet, looked him in the face. Thereupon, having approved his identity, he ordered the gates to be opened, and bade Miles enter the lists with his squire and his friends. At the south side of the lists a raised scaffolding had been built for the king and those who looked on. It was not unlike that which had been erected at Devlin Castle when Miles had first jousted as belted knight. Here were the same raised seats for the king, the tapestries, the hangings, the fluttering pennons, and the royal standard floating above. Only here were no fair-faced ladies looking down upon him, but instead stern-browed lords and knights in armor and squires, and here were no merry laughing and buzz of talk and flutter of fans and kerchiefs, but all was very quiet and serious. Miles riding upon his horse, with Gascoigne holding the bridle rein and his attorney walking beside him with his hand upon the stirrups, followed the constable across the lists to an open space in front of the seat where the king sat. Then, having reached his appointed station, he stopped, and the constable, advancing to the foot of the stairway that led to the dais above, announced in a loud voice that the challenger had entered the lists. Then call the defendant straight away, said the king, for noon draweth nigh. The day was very warm, and the sun, bright and unclouded, shone fiercely down upon the open lists. 
Perhaps few men nowadays could bear the scorching heat of iron plates such as Miles wore, from which the body was only protected by a leathern jacket and hose. But men's bodies in those days were tougher and more seasoned to hardships of weather than they are in these our times. Miles thought no more of the burning iron plates that encased him than a modern soldier thinks of his dress uniform in warm weather. Nevertheless, he raised the umbril of his helmet to cool his face as he waited the coming of his opponent. He turned his eyes upward to the row of seats on the scaffolding above, and even in the restless, bewildering multitude of strange faces turned toward him, he recognized those he knew. The Prince of Wales, his companions of the Scotland Yard household, the Duke of Clarence, the Bishop of Winchester, and some of the noblemen of the Earl of Mackworth's party, who had been buzzing about the prince for the past month or so. But his glance swept over all these, rather perceiving than seeing them, and then rested upon a square, box-like compartment not unlike a prisoner's dock in the courtroom of our day. For in the box sat his father, with the Earl of Mackworth upon one side, and Sir James Lee upon the other. The blind man's face was very pale, but still wore its usual expression of calm serenity, the calm serenity of a blind face. The Earl was also very pale, and he kept his eyes fixed steadfastly upon Miles with a keen and searching look, as though to pierce the very bottom of the young man's heart, and discover if indeed not one little fragment of dry rot of fear or uncertainty tainted the solid courage of his knighthood. Then he heard the criers calling the defendant at the four corners of the lists, O yees, O yees, O yees, William Bushy Brookhurst, Earl of Alban, come to this combat, in which you be enterprised this day, to discharge your sureties before the king, the constable, and the marshal, and to encounter in your defense Miles Falworth, knight, the accepted champion upon behalf of Gilbert Reginald Falworth. The challenger. O yees, O yees, O yees, let the defendant come. So they continued calling, until, by the sudden turning of all faces, Miles knew that his enemy was at hand. Then presently he saw the Earl and his attendants enter the outer gate at the west end of the barrier. He saw the constable and the marshal meet him. He saw the formal words of greeting pass. He saw the constable raise the umbril of his helmet. Then the gate opened, and the Earl of Alban entered, clad cap a pie in a full suit of magnificent Milan armor, without jupon or adornment of any kind. As he approached across the list, Miles closed the umbril of his helmet, and then sat quite still and motionless, for the time was come. So he sat erect and motionless as a statue of iron half hearing the reading of the long, intricately worded bills, absorbed in many thoughts of past and present things. At last the reading ended, and then he calmly and composedly obeyed, under the direction of his attorney, the several forms and ceremonies that followed, answered the various official questions, took the various oaths. Then Gascoigne, leading the horse by the bridle rein, conducted him back to his station at the east end of the lists. As the faithful friend and squire made one last searching examination of arms and armor, 
the marshal and the clerk came to the young champion and administered the final oath, by which he swore that he carried no concealed weapons. The weapons allowed by the high court were then measured and attested. They consisted of the long-sword, the short-sword, the dagger, the mace, and a weapon known as the hand's arm, or glaive-lot, a heavy sword-like blade eight palms long, a palm in breadth, and riveted to a stout handle of wood three feet long. The usual lance had not been included in the list of arms, the hand's arm being substituted in its place. It was a fearful and murderous weapon, though cumbersome, unhandy and ill-adapted for quick or dexterous stroke, nevertheless the Earl of Alban had petitioned the king to have it included in the list, and in answer to the king's expressed desire the court had adopted it in the stead of the lance, yielding thus much to the royal wishes. Nor was it a small concession. The hand's arm had been a weapon very much in vogue in King Richard's day, and was now nearly, if not entirely, out of fashion with the younger generation of warriors. The Earl of Alban was, of course, well used to the blade. With Miles it was strange and new, either for attack or in defense. With the administration of the final oath and the examination of the weapons, the preliminary ceremonies came to an end, and presently Miles heard the criers calling to clear the lists. As those around him moved to withdraw, the young knight drew off his mailed gauntlet, and gave Gascoigne's hand one last final clasp, strong, earnest, and intense, with the close friendship of young manhood. And poor Gascoigne looked up at him with a face ghastly white. Then all were gone. The gates of the principal list and that of the false list were closed clashing, and Miles was alone face to face with his mortal enemy. End of chapter 32 Recording by Rhonda Fetterman